Good morning. I'm writing myself a note because if I don't write it now, it's gone forever. I have my memory in my pocket, but I can't find a way to plug it into my mind. So we are in lesson two of uh, our study in hope. And uh, as is sometimes predictable of me, things that start small get a little longer. And uh, I've decided that I'll, I'll protract our study a little bit. As we were uh, studying last week, I made the observation that in the uh, Gospels, the word hope, in the New American Standard Version at least, the word hope occurs only twice in all of the Gospels. And, and that might lead one to the conclusion that the Gospels are not really about hope. But you remember I cautioned you that uh, even though you may not find a word in a concordance study, you may find the thought. And so I, I, that sort of set me off on a little bit of a, of a personal search, and, and I asked myself, where is hope in the Gospels? If it's only two times in a concordance, where is hope in the Gospels? And I came to this conclusion. Hope is the central theme of the Gospels. And uh, I like to, when I, when I study the scriptures, I, I, somehow my mind likes to wrap itself around a book or a portion of scripture to where I can sort of think my way through it. And so I came to the conclusion that hope is a theme by which we may study the Gospels and, in fact, a theme by which we may better understand the Gospels. So I chose the, the subject, I should say I changed the subject, to hope in the Gospels. And I'd like to suggest to you that there is all kinds of hope in the Gospels. The problem is that most of the hope we find is misguided. And, and that really explains what happens in the latter days of our Lord Jesus' life is people have been carrying about false expectations and false hopes based upon their fleshly desires rather than biblical hopes based upon, you might call them, heavenly desires. So I want to work our way through, if we can, this whole matter of hope in the New Testament. Thank you, Al. He thinks I'm going to dry up, and I may. So let's take a look, uh, first of all, at hope uh, prior to our Lord's public ministry. And I'm, I'm just thinking now in terms of the way in which a sense of hope and expectation grew uh, in, in the whole land of Israel by virtue of, of certain events. You remember that God has been silent for 400 years. God had silenced the prophets and so there is this period of just waiting in the doldrums, as it were, of history, wondering when these promises of the Old Testament are going to come true, when they are going to come to pass. And then comes John the Baptist. And you find a couple of things that happen in, in, the, uh, in the birth account of John the Baptist that begin to sort of raise the hopes of people. First of all, you have that incident where Zacharias is speechless. Remember, he comes, he has his normal tour of duty, but when he goes in and the angel speaks to him about the birth of his son, 
he has a little objection to raise about the uh, the logistics of, of that, and so he is rendered speechless. When he comes out, there are people there, and they observe he's speechless, and that fact leads them to conclude that he has seen a vision. So there is a sense in all of that as though God has said something, but he can't say what it is, and uh, and they know that something is in the offing, so to speak. Luke chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Then you remember when the child is born, there is the discussion about what they should name uh, John the Baptist. And uh, and while the name John has been suggested, it was not a family name, and so it didn't seem appropriate. And Zacharias writes down, his name is John. When he does so, he receives his speech, and, and here's the impact of that upon the people. In Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 64, Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue released, and he spoke, blessing God. All their neighbors were filled with fear, and throughout the entire hill country of Judea, all these things were talked about. All who heard these things kept them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? So there is that, by rumor, spreading out. There is that sense, something is in the wind, something is taking place. What is it that's going on? And God is bringing about that sense of hope. Then you have the hope that surrounds the birth of our Lord Jesus. We find, for example, the incident where the angels appear to the shepherds, and the shepherds then come and they see the child. And in Luke chapter uh, 2, Verses 17 and 18, we read these words. When they saw him, they related what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds said. Now, I grant you that's Bethlehem, and that's in the sort of vicinity of Jerusalem, five miles or six miles away, but rumors don't take long, even in those days, and they can travel far and fast. And so the word is already spread. And that then is fueled by what uh, takes place with the Magi a little bit later. But let's take a look in Luke still, a little bit later in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 uh, and following. And I'll focus on verses 36 through 38. Here are two people. I have always assumed that Simeon was old. I, I really don't know why. I, I can't dare say that he acts old or talks old, but there's just a sense that he is. Anna, we know, she is. No question about her age. Isn't it interesting that here are two people who appear to be, I'm speaking now of Simeon mainly, but Anna in particular, they are assured by God, Simeon is, that he will not die until he has seen God's salvation. So here's a man who has true hope of Messiah, and he's awaiting that, and he stays there at the temple, expecting that that's where it's going to take place. And then, of course, there's Anna, and remember, I'll just read verse 38 of Luke chapter 2. It says, At that moment she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So I take it that there was a community of, of let's say, a remnant of believers who were looking forward to Messiah's coming, this woman now says, I have seen God's salvation. 
And that is seconded by Simeon, who is now free, he believes, to go ahead and die. By the way, it's clear that he has a biblical hope, because what hope would you have if you're saying, I'm now ready to die, unless you believe your hope, like that in Hebrews 11, goes beyond the grave. Now we find the incident in Matthew of the coming of the Magi, and uh, we read this in verses uh, 1 through 3 of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the time of King Herod, wise men came from the east and came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem is troubled at the words that they hear. So you have this incredible sense that something is coming to pass. It's first revealed sort of in obscurity in in, in uh, the regions of Bethlehem. Now it's revealed in the capital. And so there is that sense that God is at work and salvation is coming. And that's fueled even further by Jesus' appearance at the temple at the age of 12. And verse 7 of Luke, 47 of Luke chapter 2 says this, And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So all of these things are sort of compounded and the word spreading out within the community, especially those who were people of hope, that something is taking place and that Messiah is coming near. And, of course, that silence is broken altogether by the appearance of John the Baptist. So let's talk about Jesus and and John the Baptist. When John the Baptist begins his preaching, he does not know who the Messiah is. Now, i got to tell you, that's a pretty spooky thing. To say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then to have to say... I'm not sure yet who the Messiah is, but he's coming soon. That's what he says. And in John chapter 1, remember, he says, I was going about my ministry of baptism, and one of the reasons why Jesus needed to be baptized was that John was told, the one that you baptize, who has the Spirit descend upon him and the Spirit remains, that one is the Messiah. You can imagine, as John's baptizing these folks, and there seem to be a lot of them, he's watching very carefully. Wouldn't you agree? He's looking because he's saying, it's it's one of these. And it was our Lord Jesus. And so John, from that moment on, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's now announcing that it's Jesus who is indeed the Messiah. So we see the intersection of the ministry of John the Baptist with that of Jesus because they both come forth proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then you have that incident in Matthew chapter 11 with John's doubts. Notice John is in prison when he doubts. He there begins to anticipate his future And he takes note of the fact that Jesus is rising in his popularity, but the popularity of Jesus doesn't seem to be doing any good for the prison sentence of John. And so he asks the question, did I get this right or not? 
and we'll see uh, how John's uh, answer may betray a problem in his hope in just a minute. Then you have the calling uh, uh, with Jesus calling his disciples. Notice, first of all, the ones that he doesn't call, uh, the putting off of disciples. Luke chapter 9, here are these people who come and say, I'll follow you, but I've got to bury my father first and whatever. And Jesus basically says, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. I don't have a motel room in the Hilton Inn. I have nowhere to lay my head. He's saying to people who want to follow him, if you follow me, it's going to be tough. He will say, if one wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. It's very clear in the invitation that Jesus gives that following him has a price, and that certainly puts off a number of people. But then you have the uh, the calling of the twelve, and here are the things that I see that the disciples rightly perceive that Jesus is saying to them about discipleship and following him. One is they have the promise of his presence. In, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, it says that he calls them in order that they may be with him. So one of the strong attractions of those disciples who chose to follow Jesus was they believed, and rightly so, that they were going to be with Jesus. And that, of course, was huge to them. Then there was the promise of provision. There's several callings, I think, as you know. When Jesus calls his disciples, it looks like there's sort of a short-term call in John chapter 1 where they accompany him, but they kind of go back to their jobs and whatever. It's Luke chapter 5 where he calls them, and from that point on, they leave their boats and their nets and they follow Jesus. But that story begins with Jesus uh, there on the shore, and he goes out in, in one of the boats of one of the disciples, and he preaches. And when he's done, he says to the disciples, cast out into the deep. Now, these guys were fishermen, and it, it's apparent from the text that they fished at night. Now, they didn't need to have lights and whatever because they fished with nets. And so probably it's better that the fish don't see the nets, so the darkness was not a problem. The disciples objected. They say, you know, Jesus, we know that you know a whole lot about the Bible, but we're professionals. We know fishing. And, and uh, we've been out all night. And, and let me just let you know, Jesus, this is not the time or the place to be fishing. They said, nevertheless, at your word, we'll launch out. Remember, Jesus has them drop their nets. They have that bountiful harvest. And then he calls them to follow him. Now, it seems to me it's very clear in what Jesus does that he's letting them know, if you follow me, I will provide for you. He's letting them know that he will be their provision. Then there's the assurance of power. Uh, when, you, when you look in Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus is sending out his disciples, he's not only sending them out to heal, to cast out demons, to preach the gospel, he's sending them out, he says, to raise the dead. Now, that experience that those disciples had was, among other things, the assurance that when our Lord Jesus sent them out and when they followed him, they had the power to do the things that he had called them to do. He promised them present blessings. I'm thinking of that text in Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, where the disciples, in effect, have said, Look, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. 
And he says to them, if you follow me, you will have not only a hundredfold of houses, of brothers and sisters and mothers, remember, in this present age and in time to come, eternal life, and if you follow that text down to verse 30, 12 thrones. You will each sit on 12 thrones. My point is this. Jesus promised certain things would happen in this life. He promised other things, other blessings would follow them in the life to come. And, and they needed to see those as more distinct than they did. He also promised them persecution. Jesus did not use fine print. He didn't give them these nice, bold promises and then hide the, in the fine print all the, the downsides. He made it very clear what following him was all about. And that involved persecution. So that text that was read this morning, that David read, uh, talks about the promises and the blessings that our Lord is going to bestow on those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn and so on. But he goes on to talk about the blessing that comes from those who are persecuted. It's clear those who follow Jesus are going to pay a price. When Jesus calls his disciples and sends them out in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 10, again, much of what he says in verses 16 and following is saying, here's what you're going to face when you go out in, in my name. Mark chapter 10, uh, we see the same thing. So Jesus over and over is talking about that. He, he made it clear that to follow him was going to involve sacrifice. Even to the masses, he made that clear. And, and that would be evident, for example, in the story of the rich man who comes along and says, what can I you know, do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, sell, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. It was clear when people heard Jesus offer them the kingdom of heaven, and called them to follow him. He was calling them to a life, not only a blessing, but a life of, of suffering and of sacrifice. So what's the problem with John, and what's the problem with Jesus' disciples? It seems to me that as clear as Jesus was about the cost of discipleship, there was a fuzziness in John's mind about the now versus the then. Uh, the difference between what is earthly and what is heavenly. And so John the Baptist, when he speaks, he speaks about Jesus as coming and he's going to clean house. Isn't that the sense you get with John the Baptist? He's going to come, you know, and he's going to come with fire and and he's going to clean up. And that's why men were encouraged to repent of sin. Now, Jesus is going to do that. But that focus is more in the future, and John doesn't seem to understand that. So I think what happens is, when John is sitting there in his cell, and he begins to contemplate what's going on, and here's Jesus out there getting a following, somehow nobody's knocking down the jail door and saying, it's time for you to get out. John realizes it does not bode well in this life, and therefore, he's asking, are my hopes misguided? The answer to that question would be yes. Now, not the fact that he has trusted in Jesus and identified him as the Messiah, but in terms of his understanding of the then versus now. I think John the Baptist uh, didn't have it exactly right. By the way, prophets weren't omniscient. 
Prophets were not omniscient. They were absolutely 100% right in that which they said. And John the Baptist was right. But he didn't know everything. That's why Peter says they scratched their heads and studied their own writings and said, what did I mean by that? And John didn't obviously get the full drift of where his prophecies were leading. So they confused the spiritual, the earthly and the fleshly with the spiritual and the heavenly. And they didn't have it right like Hebrews 11 says the Old Testament saints did. All these died in faith, not having received what was promised. They understood that what God promised was heavenly. They didn't look for an earthly city. They looked for a heavenly city. And they were right. But I think both John and the disciples were thinking, unfortunately, only of the present. That's why the disciples kept saying, isn't it now that you're going to make the kingdom come? Isn't it now? They wanted now, not then. They wanted the things that would make them prominent and powerful. Sit at your right hand, sit at your left hand. Not the suffering and the things that were going to come because they had to take up their cross. So I would suggest that the misconceptions of John the Baptist and of our Lord's disciples are just a picture of the misconception of the masses of Israelites who had their own sets of expectations about what Jesus coming meant for them. So there were great hopes, high hopes, in Israel, especially the pinnacle of that being the triumphal entry. The problem is they were hoping for the wrong things, and therefore they were quickly let down. Jesus and the masses. I wish we had time to to, to delve into this in greater detail, but but is it not clear to you as you read through the Gospels, whichever one it is, that Jesus comes forth preaching the gospel accompanied by signs and miracles which underscored the truthfulness of his words so that people came to him and they had great hope. The people who were sick had hope of being healed. The people who were oppressed had had hopes too of being delivered from that. Uh, Those who were persecuted uh, from what Jesus said, would have hopes as well. So they came to our Lord Jesus with a great deal of hope. And, and I was just looking at the verses that preceded what David read in verses 23 through 25 of Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus came forth, he healed them of every kind of disease. He manifested his power so there was not anything outside the realm of Jesus' authority. And what you find as you read through the Gospels is the disciples are watching this and their eyes are literally rolling. I can just see Peter and John looking at each other and they're like, oh, my goodness. I mean, here Jesus is. He stills the storm. And they say to themselves, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey his voice. The further they go along in the earthly life of Jesus, the more they discover that he has authority and power over everything. Everything. And so there's the, 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 the incredible hope that comes uh, with that. So sinners have hope. By the way, it's interesting. I did a little, uh, just a numbers count on sinners. The word sinners occurs 30 times in the Bible, 30 times. 16 of those occur in the Gospels. Over 50% of the use of the word sinners comes in the Gospel. And 
And isn't it true that, that the great hope was for sinners that Jesus was the solution? So that when the man is lowered down through the roof, the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. When the woman who is caught in the act of adultery is, is, is thrust down before Jesus, he makes it clear that he is one who forgives sins. All the way through, when you have the woman in Luke chapter 7 and she's washing the feet of Jesus, Jesus says, the one who has sinned much loves much, who has forgiven much loves much. And so here you have this, this sense of openness and accessibility and hope on the part of sinners to where they gravitated to Jesus. And on the same count, you have the religious leaders, the separatists, who are saying, wait a minute, Jesus associates with tax gatherers and sinners. And that's their huge objection. The funny thing about the Gospels is the very thing that made Jesus most appealing to the masses is what made Jesus the biggest threat to the leaders. His popularity, his power, all of that. So you have the sinners drawn to him and the saints, if I may put that in brackets, repulsed by him because he surrounds himself with people who are sinners. So how does Jesus deal with this and put this, this, this uh, false hope into perspective. All the way through Jesus' ministry, you see a growing sense of hope that culminates at the triumphal entry. And yet, if that hope gets out of control, there's a problem. Is that not right? If that hope gets too uh, enthusiastic, then something's going to happen that's not going to be good. So I want you to notice the things that Jesus does to sort of regulate and monitor and even downplay that expectation. At least these are the things I've thought about. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, when he's talking about the hope that's there, he talks about those who are distressed in body and in soul. And then he goes on to say, the kingdom is really the kingdom of heaven. You know, there's been some theological discussions that go on. Why did Jesus use a different term, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? I'm not sure that I've got the answer to that, but I'll tell you this. It seems to me that too often people thought of the kingdom of God as the kingdom that was on earth. And I think one of the reasons Jesus kept talking about it, the kingdom of heaven, is because that's where our hope is. Our hope ought to be in heaven. So Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up your treasures, not on earth, lay up your treasures in heaven. Because that's where it is. When you do your, your, your devotional things, don't do it so men on earth see you and reward you. Do it realizing your heavenly Father sees and He will reward you. So the Sermon on the Mount is pointing men toward heaven, not toward earth. The parable of the four soils. Isn't it interesting that Jesus begins... Uh, his teaching uh, in parables with the parable of the four soils. What, if it, what does that parable tell us? Well, it tells us some people aren't going to believe they're the hardened soil and, and Satan's going to take it away and they're not even going to believe. But there are two kinds of soil that are going to quickly receive and eventually fall out. Why? Because things get tough. Jesus is already, in a sense, paving the way for those, like was mentioned in John chapter 2, you might call them sign believers. 
people who saw the signs, and man, are they on board until it gets tough. Because they didn't really understand the gospel. That's my point. They're not people who were saved and got lost. They were people who didn't get the gospel in the first place. And maybe it's because they were watching the televangelists of their day tell them what the gospel was about. So the Sermon on the Mount, then the parable of the four soils, kind of cleared the air. Notice this. If you want to get people toned down, I notice Jesus does two things. In the, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, Jesus comes to the synagogue at Nazareth, apparently early in his ministry. He, has, he reads from Isaiah, chapter 61, and then says, Now these things, this day, these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. And everybody says, Whoa, hallelujah, what, you know, right on. They're all ready to go. Too much so. How does Jesus settle them down? He throws the Gentiles into the mix. And he says, just hold on one second. There's one thing you ought to understand. Remember the, uh, the widow that was there in Elijah's day? There were lots of widows in uh, Israel. But this one was a Gentile widow that God took care of. Do you remember that there were lots of people who were lepers in Elijah's day? But Naaman was a Syrian. And all of a sudden, the enthusiasm went from a plus 10 to a minus 10, and they're trying to push Jesus off the cliff. That's a way to settle people down. The enthusiasm was gone, folks, because he just injected a little Gentile. Or, in other instances, a little sinner here and there, and all of a sudden, some folks didn't want on board anymore. Uh, Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. Over and over in, in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9, he makes it clear what discipleship entails. It is not like some kind of a sales rally where you're hooping everybody up. Jesus makes it clear to those who would follow him what the cost would be. Interesting too, Jesus, I never thought of this uh, until I was thinking about this whole matter of hope. Jesus puts the damper on things a little bit when he begins to teach in parables. Now, we know from uh, Mark 3 and Mark 4, also Mark 12 and Mark, uh, Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, where the parables are introduced. We know that one of the reasons why Jesus began to speak in parables comes out of Isaiah chapter 6, and it was because they had attributed the miracles of Jesus to the work of the devil. Now, that was not blasphemy against Jesus, by his definition. It was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is the one who opens men's hearts to the gospel, then uh, uh, Jesus began to teach in parables so that those who had reached that conclusion would not understand and would not believe. But the parables did something else. People went away not all razzed up and then given some kind of thing, you know, go break down the Roman governor's door or, you know, do this or that. People went away who had heard Jesus talk about the kingdom, scratching their heads and say to themselves, what in the world did he mean by that? Is that not true? It was only the disciples, the text tells us. Jesus explained privately to his disciples. So all of a sudden, if they've got too much enthusiasm, Jesus speaks in parables and people are kind of settled down because they don't know what to make of what he said about the kingdom. Uh, 
John chapter 6. Interesting text because you remember there's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does a couple of things there. Number one, he says to them, you're looking for bread. You're looking for something in this present. You're not really looking for what I'm about. So he's going to talk about the bread of life, which when people partake of it, they live forever, you know, like we observe at the Lord's Supper. And, and so he, he, he rebukes them, as it were. Remember, in John 6, they wanted to make him king by force. Remember when he says that people were trying to force their way into the kingdom? Jesus had to put the lid on that. And the way he does it in John chapter 6 is to rebuke them, number one, and then to speak to him about his sacrifice. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. What happened? The masses went home and said, that's not for us. That's a way of really settling things down. And obviously, it was a prototype of that which would come later. Then, of course, there are the things that Jesus says to his disciples, uh, his, his prediction of, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, of the fact that the Son of Man is going to be rejected and crucified and then risen from the dead. That tended to put a damper on the enthusiasm of the disciples in Matthew 16. In fact, Peter thought he needed to straighten Jesus out a little bit. And then there's the upper room discourse. And again, Jesus is talking about how difficult things are going to be. And, of course, the Olivet Discourse as well. Matthew 24, it doesn't take long before Jesus is talking to his disciples about how things are going to be difficult. My point is, when you look at the teaching of Jesus, he makes it clear what real hope is. But he also tends to dampen, as it were, the enthusiasm of those who have a worldly hope that might get out of control. Jesus does something else. I call it minimizing the spectacular. Think about these things. He restricted his miracle ministry. Mark chapter 1, remember Jesus heals the mother-in-law of Peter, and it isn't but, you know, evening time, and now all of a sudden the crowds are at the door and whatever, and Jesus is healing everybody that, that comes. The next morning, the disciples are out looking for Jesus, and, and he's gone, He's out praying, and the disciples said, Man, Jesus, hurry up. The crowds are there. They're ready. For, they're all revved up for, for this thing to go. Jesus says, No, we're moving on. I came to preach the gospel, not just to perform miracles, to preach the gospel. So Jesus minimized, as it were, the possibilities for a miracle ministry. He could have put up a tent, and he could have had lines gathered at the door, but that wasn't what he was about primarily. He silenced the demons. In, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 41, it says that he silenced the demons when he cast them out. And it says specifically because they knew who he was. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is that while there is a lot of enthusiasm about Jesus in the Gospels, nobody really has got it all figured out about who Jesus is. We do. We do, and we superimpose our Messiah mentality back on him, and we're right. But when you look at Jesus when, he, uh, when the great confession is given, he says, who do men say that I am? 
Well, you know, John the Baptist risen from the dead, the prophet, which would be Deuteronomy chapter 18, and whatever, and it's only Peter who says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says to them, don't tell anybody. What does that suggest? It suggests they don't know. So when you come to the triumphal entry and Jesus comes and people are putting out the palm branches and whatever, you're saying, at last, at last, they finally got it. You know what they said when Jesus came? Here's the prophet who comes from Nazareth of Galilee. You remember what was said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? They weren't thinking messianically. They really didn't get the whole thing. So anyway, Jesus silences the demons so they don't, so to speak, spill the beans. Now, notice the, what I call the private miracles. And this helps, I think, helps me understand these. When the leper comes to Jesus and Jesus, Jesus heals him, he says, don't tell anybody, but go to the priest, right? Then when you have the, uh, the deaf and dumb man in Mark chapter 7, he takes him aside, heals him, and says... Don't tell anybody. Keep it private. The blind man in Mark chapter 8. Jesus took him out of the village. Now, this isn't a huge city. But Jesus takes him out of the village. And you remember that he sees the men as trees walking and whatever. But eventually, he's fully healed. Jesus says, don't go back to the village. Why? Because Jesus was trying not to create a pandemonium and, and enthusiasm that would be uh, ill ill-founded at that point. Luke chapter 8, the synagogue official's daughter. Remember, she has actually already died. The word is given to them. When he gets there, they're already starting the funeral proceedings. Jesus sends everybody out of that place except the parents, Peter, James, and John. He keeps it private. So there is a sense when you look at the ministry of Jesus, if he, if he had a PR man, that guy would have been telling him, ooh, wow, you got to get this on YouTube. you got to make this really fly. Jesus deliberately minimized the spectacular. And keep in mind, too, in terms of Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't spend all his time in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where it's all going to end. But when you look at the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a kind of a, a little attack on Jerusalem, stirs things up, cleansing of the temple, chapter 2 of John, and then he leaves. Comes again, and then he leaves. So he stirs things up, and then, of course, there's that incident where he, uh, he raises Lazarus in John chapter 11, and then there will be the triumphal entry. But all of that is very calculated so that Jesus is spending much of his time out of the metroplex, so to speak, so that the, the, the people do not get prematurely worked up uh, as they should not. Now, think about the triumphal entry. All of that is leading up to the time when Jesus is going to make this triumphal entry after he has raised Lazarus. And remember, Bethany is only a short distance from Jerusalem. Many of those who were there comforting Mary and Martha were those who had come from Jerusalem. And when they saw what Jesus had done, many of them believed, right? And some of them didn't, and they went to the Jewish religious leaders. And the Jewish religious leaders said, Are we crazy or what? This thing is totally out of hand. Jesus' popularity has gotten so much, this thing, we're going we're gonna to lose our control, we're going to lose our position and our power. It's going to be over for us. 
And that's when they feel like they have to do something very dramatic. So here's the interesting thing. If you were to look at a chart, it wouldn't be a chart of the stock market. We'd be looking downhill probably most of the time. But a chart that goes uphill, when you look at the sense of expectation and messianic hope that pinnacles at the triumphal entry, the opposition parallels it. The opposition follows that hope because the religious leaders saw that Jesus' popularity was the end for them. And so you see these two things reaching their culmination at the, at the triumphal entry. And so here are the masses. And don't you find yourself having to say, what in the world happened in that last week that they could go from hail, hail, at the triumphal entry to his blood be upon us and our children at the end of that week. What happened? I think it's all related to hope. It seems to me that what takes place is Jesus goes in in the triumphal entry. Remember, he literally possesses the temple, throws out the money changers, and now he goes into the temple and he's there all during the day, which is where the masses are so that the opposition can't put their hands on him. The opposition has determined, we're going to kill this guy, but we are not going to do it during the feast, which, of course, was necessary because that would fulfill Scripture. During the Passover, he would be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. We're not going to do it because they were scared to death of the crowds. But what happened was Jesus' popularity became so great they had to take emergency measures. Just in the nick of time in the providence of God, Judas is distressed because... The money that could have been put in the bag so he could have dipped from it uh, was rather wasted in his mind by the perfume that was used to anoint our Lord Jesus. And so he at that moment goes out and makes his deal with the Jewish religious leaders that he's going to turn Jesus over. But Jesus says to Judas, I know my betrayer is sitting at the table with me. And when Judas says to him, is it me? For all intents and purposes, Jesus said, yes. And Judas couldn't get out of there fast enough. Now Judas has no option but to go and make this thing happen, and the religious opposition has no option but what they have to make it happen at that very moment, the time of the feast, to fulfill the uh, the scriptures. But what did the masses want? What caused them to go from hailing Jesus to hailing Barabbas? What caused the crowds to say, give us Barabbas rather than Jesus? Well, Barabbas was a murderer and he was a lot of bad things. But more than anything, Barabbas was the revolutionary. Was that not true? Barabbas was the revolutionary. He was the one who was trying to overturn Rome. It became very apparent when Jesus is privately arrested, and I think most of the crowd's not there, But all of a sudden, when these trials begin to take place and whatever, number one, Peter is willing to make a standoff. He gets that sword out, whacks off an ear. He's ready to go down fighting because he believes Jesus is going to turn on the power and turn that thing off. Right? So when Jesus says to Peter, put that sword back, and Jesus now goes with them and endures the trial and and doesn't speak in his defense... Not only is that cause for the disciples to say, what's here for us? We're willing to lay our lives down to bring that kingdom in right here and right now. The problem is it wasn't to be right then and right now. 
It was to be through the death of Jesus. They did not understand that. That's what caused Peter and the others to flee. But that was in the purpose of God too. Because that spared his disciples from that which would be his experience. When you look at the masses, the masses are expecting Jesus to throw the rascals out. And instead, Jesus submits to Rome rather than to overthrow Rome. And they say to themselves, that's not our kind of guy. Give us Barabbas. We look for a guy who will get in here and will shed some blood and free us up. He's our man. It's all because of their hopes. Their hopes are misguided. And and that's where you see, I think, the rapid turnaround. By the way, try this on for size. Could be wrong. I think Judas saw things more clearly than any of the other disciples at this moment in time. Everybody's always wanted to know, why did Judas do it? Now, you have to understand, Judas was an unbeliever. Is that not true? Clearly stated, Judas is an unbeliever. Therefore, as an unbeliever, he has no future hope. Correct? If he has no future hope and all his hope is in the present... Judas is the one who figures out first, this does not bode well. He sees what, now the other disciples said, okay, we'll go to to be with Lazarus and we'll go die with Jesus. They understood the dangers. But Judas said to himself, if the kingdom isn't coming here and it isn't coming now and it isn't coming on this earth and it's not physical and it doesn't have a treasury bag, everything I put my investment in is gone. And, and so he's trying to make the best of a bad deal. He's trying to cash out because he understands how things are going. The other disciples are just mystified. But at least they have some kind of hope, although it doesn't look very apparent at that moment. They have some hope beyond the grave. But Judas doesn't. So it's very understandable in one sense why Judas would begin to, to see where things were going and, and to take the course of action that he did. By the way, his actions certainly would not be encouraging to the disciples. If one of your member has, members has already defected, then what does it say? It looks like the movement's falling apart from the top down. So let's talk about what uh, that meant in terms of the resurrection. When I see what I see at the, at the time right after the death of our Lord Jesus, I see the disciples at an all-time low. I guess what I would say is hopeless. Would you not agree with that? Hopeless. So that when the women who have spoken to the angel and to go back and tell the disciples, Jesus is alive, their response is, call the boys in the white coats. You need help. You need help. Man, what is wrong with them? There isn't even a chance in their mind that there is hope. When you look at Luke chapter 24, Jesus now walking along the road to Emmaus with these guys, and he says, man, you guys look downcast. And they basically spell out the story, and they said, you know, we thought we thought our hopes were in Jesus. It's over. It's all gone. Done. <laughs> Jesus had to explain a few things to them. And of course, they went away with their hearts burning with expectation. Then you look in John chapter 20, and you see the disciples are hiding out in a locked room. The absolute despair that was there without the resurrection of Jesus. And then you see that 
incredible turn of events. They were not presupposed to believe in the resurrection. They'd forgotten about it. They weren't trying to make it look like Jesus had been resurrected. They weren't even trying to make it look like his body was stolen. But all of a sudden, they became so convinced that now those who were fearful, hiding in locked rooms, are standing in the book of Acts saying, this Jesus is the Lord and Christ. Man, pretty powerful stuff. That was the change that came about because of the resurrection. That's where their hope is. Their hope now is in the resurrected Christ. That's why the apostles in the book of Acts were witnesses of the resurrection. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when they picked that 12th apostle, he had to be one who had seen the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of our Lord was the key to everything. It was the basis on which the New Testament church is built. So let's talk about some things in conclusion. I tried to say that the, that hope is a central theme throughout all of the Gospels. The problem is it was the wrong kind of hope. It was misguided hope. It was expectation that had to do with now, that had to do with the physical, that had to do essentially with what would be satisfying to me. By the way, that's the very thing that Peter says characterizes the false prophets. Does he not? Is they appeal to that dimension. That's not what the gospel is about. Jesus used that rising sense of hope in a, in a purposeful way, one, to bring about the triumphal entry, and also to create the sheer panic in the opposition to the point where they were ready to kill Jesus on Passover rather than to wait for a quiet death some other time. So he actually uses that to his own uh, advantage. Think about the uh, temptation that we have of doing exactly the same thing. Is this not really our problem? I, I was thinking of these texts. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this world's good not to be haughty or to set their hopes on riches, which are uncertain, but on God, who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future. Is it wrong to be rich? Absolutely not. It's wrong to place your hope in riches. Now, all of us tell ourselves, okay, we're not rich, so what? In these days of economic meltdown, there is a way in which every single one of us is thinking more about money than we should. Or I should say we're thinking wrongly about money in a way that we should not. So this is not just a problem in, in Paul's day. It's a problem in our own. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas deserted me since he loved this present age. One of the great battles that goes on in your hearts and mine is over-attachment to now. Over-attachment to all of the delights and the delicacies that this world has to offer to where our hope really isn't heaven. Our hope is earthly rather than eternal. We need to be on guard. 
The other thing I think we need to learn from this is we need to be very careful in the presentation of the gospel. I'm talking about our witness to other people. When Peter says that we ought to be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within us, number one, people need to see we have hope, whether the stock market's good or bad that day, and whether things are going as well as we think in other dimensions. We have hope. But we need to be very careful in our proclamation of the gospel that we're not catching with bait. That's using Paul's words. That we're not, in in, in our desire to be seeker-sensitive, that we're not offering the gospel to people in a way that appeals to them in their flesh. i got to tell you, when you look at Jesus' presentation of the gospel, it is not fleshly appeal. He is saying, I offer to you hope in the midst of your despair. I offer to you the forgiveness of sins. I offer to you who suffer in this life the blessings of eternity. And I also offer to you suffering and difficulty in this life when you choose to follow me. I fear that what we've done is we've sweetened up the gospel deal to where we're actually encouraging people to trust Jesus for the wrong reasons. And I would say to you, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what we should do or this text teaches us. The good news is God gives hope to the hopeless. The people who come to Jesus are the people who have no options left. I giggled, I confess, when Steve was talking about the the difficulties that they're facing. One doctor is out of the picture, the next doctor quits, and now there's no doctors at all. God loves impossible situations. He loves to take people that the world has written off and said, no hope for them. And those people have heard that message loud and clear. The hopeless of this world have the best news of all. The hope of the gospel is for hopeless people. And the greatest problem we face is convincing hopeless people they're hopeless in anything but Jesus. That's what the gospel is about. That's why people came to Jesus with expectation. Here's the uh, another piece of good news. When our hopes are heavenly... They cannot even approximate, they cannot even imagine the good that lies ahead. Here's what I'm saying. When you look at the gospel, people, the gospels, people are overreaching, in a sense, with their hopes. They have unrealistic expectations and desires that will never be realized. And that's why the disciples fall away for the time. That's why the crowds uh, hollered, crucify, crucify. But the reality is, when our hopes are focused on heavenly promises, our hopes will never match the reality. This is just like one text, 1 Corinthians 2.9, citing the Old Testament. But just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. You know what that says? Our hope is boundless, boundless. When we get to heaven, it's not like we get to kick the tires and look around and see the flaws and the the imperfections of what God has done. Every day in heaven, it gets better and better for eternity. 
That's what one has when one puts their hope in God and the blessings that he provides. If anybody's here this morning who doesn't have that hope, all I can say to you is there's nothing better to offer you than the hope of the gospel. Trust in him. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the gospels. Thank you for the way that you brought your disciples through their foolish hope and brought them to the bedrock hope that's based on your resurrection, on the atoning work of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary and on the future hope of all of those blessings that await everyone who trusts in you. In Jesus' name, amen.